Welcome to Prime Seasoned Wisdom Podcast, where candid conversations are happening with savvy leaders that are willing to cascade from their experience while revealing the nitty-gritty part of business and management. We slice and dice here the challenges and secrets to long-term success in various careers, roles, jobs, and industries by deep diving into the essentials and the not-so-rosy bits of each career and industry. I'm your host, Dottie Stend, a seasoned management consultant and interim GM with vast experience in helping global businesses get from point A to point B, where they actually want to be, by smooth sailing between the unplanned, unexpected, or unwanted events. Let's see what you think of today's episode. Joining me is Tony Wan from the U.S. Tony, welcome, and thanks for accepting my invitation. Thanks for having me. Tony, let's begin by talking a bit about everyone's favorite subject, right? Talking about themselves, but I'll, I'll try to correct you as much as possible. We were being too modest, so please go ahead. It's actually one of my, my least favorite things to talk about, but... Um... So yeah, uh, uh, briefly on me was, um, so career-wise, uh, started half of my life is starting off in, in nonprofits, um, working for uh, a lot of different places to uh, mainly connect people with resources and people who uh, need work done in, in developing countries, and everything from clean water to AIDS and malaria hospitals, et cetera. Uh, jumped into gaming uh, over well, it's about 13 years now um, and uh, started off my gaming career on the production side. So actually as a producer, leading teams of devs and designers and, um, and artists to make mobile games. I worked for GameLog for a short stint um, and then I went off and did my own thing for a couple of years, did my own mobile game startup. Um, sold that off, joined another company, uh, did both social, you know, read Facebook gaming back in the day um, together with mobile gaming. And um, yeah, really uh, did that for a number of years. We eventually sold that company as well. And then I wanted to see if my ideas would scale. So I joined Riot Games later on, and then I would eventually join Epic. Um, working on some some little things here and there, and uh, yeah, yeah. Currently, I'm uh, flying solo. I started a consultancy, and uh, also I would say um, it's combined with uh, being able to build remote uh, teams uh, if you would need any kinds of uh, outsourcing to supplement your business in video games. That's quite a complex matrix of services uh, there, Tony. Uh, and and it's, it's quite a story going from working with public institutions, NGOs, having companies which are built from scratch and then sold, uh, then working for major game, uh, gaming producers, and uh, eventually ending up as a consultant to which uh, hopefully the executives listen so they can you know build better teams and and more productive and more efficient and more uh employee 
centric kind of uh, cultures over there. But I, I think this, this polarity of roles would not be complete without emphasizing a bit on your uh, education uh, and, and, you know, the, the values that you grew up with and, and became familiar and actually introducing them in your practice, and which is part of the reason why we're having this conversation today. Yeah, absolutely. So, you know, um, uh, born and raised in the Silicon Valley, um, eventually went to university down in San Diego. So I was at UCSD, um, graduated from there. After that, uh, I went into seminary at uh, Westminster West, we call it. Um, and I got my MDiv there. And then after that, I got my master's in uh, political management, political science, then emphasis on advocacy. Um, yeah, so that's kind of my educational background. Being a huge fan of the Stoics myself, I, there are many occasions in which I try to bring this current or lessons learned or passed on for thousands of years in, in current management. Uh, tips and tricks or current management scenarios that I have to, to face. But I got to say, those those books over there, they can really stand the test of time. And even today, uh, there's so much gold into them. So what struck me from uh, initial conversation, my first interaction with you was your approach towards building teams, to managing teams, to uh, building businesses. And it was, it was very human centric so i want to talk a bit with you about this part is it is it an advantage or a disadvantage to actually build businesses in a human-centric way i i think the it's a really good question i think the the way that you weigh it whether it's advantage or disadvantage really depends on your own personal perspective if you are someone who is only trying to narrowly uh, let's say optimize for short-term PL, it might not be a great strategy. But if you are somebody who is more concerned with building a legacy, a long-term legacy, um, if you're somebody who really wants to have a great company, if you're somebody who actually cares about how uh, your company provides opportunities for the human beings that work at it, then I think it provides very, very clear advantages for the long run. Um, you know, just off the top of my head, mm -hmm. I, I think there are arguments to be made for what I would call hidden efficiency gains, because we don't tend to measure, um, we don't, we don't set up our um, business management metrics. Um, to capture the value provided, for example, of uh, tenured employees and the cost of not having to retrain whenever you hire new people. Um, we, don't, we don't really count the cost of that. I've never seen that calculation at, at any single one of my large corporate partners that I've, um, that I've contracted through the years. Um, whenever I ask the question, there's a non-answer. Um, it's just not captured in the data. It's not something that people are paying attention to, right? There's no um, there's no measurements around the value of having 
homegrown upper level senior management in your company and how much that saved you from your executive recruiting costs and hiring bonuses and signing bonuses and hiring from the outside with inflated salaries, et cetera, because you had to beat out the competition versus, you know, growing somebody um, internally. You, you don't, these things aren't talked about, but they mm-hmm. exist. And so if you are curious enough, I believe you could measure very clearly what the financial advantages to a company are. But, you know, you have a lot of people out there, uh, maybe like a, you know, Warren Buffett, who, you know, will will look at the quality of the management of the company and really look at, uh, let's say, a couple of key moral behaviors and uh, to see if a company is really being run well or not. And, um, you know, they make their investments appropriately. And so I think, you know, again, this is very much on the surface, but even on the surface, there's certainly a uh, clear long-term value um, and, uh, you know, in, in terms of managing or doing business this way, building businesses this way. Uh, very interesting. And I think you caught a fan over here of Warren Buffett and his style and uh, his way of staying away from everything that is viral or on a trend and, and mm. going against, you know, uh, the wave with this kind of mentality that if the management is right with a bit of help and some levers over there, it can uh, actually flourish. Uh, but you said a couple of things. I want to get back to them, and, and then I want to deep dive a bit in the industry in which you are so we can explain to the folks listening to us or watching us uh, what exactly is characteristic of your industry. So number one, I think you are a thousand percent, not a hundred percent, sure uh, and correct uh, from my point of view what you're saying that this does not come out of the PL conversation. Um, people, you know, tend to look at improving EBITDA uh, from, you know, lowering or keeping salary costs low or office costs low or going into a uh, more cost uh, feasible geography from a labor cost point of view. But they completely ignore the ratio of employee cost versus employee revenue where attrition actually kicks in. So. Because it's under EBITDA and it's a small detail, it's usually, you know, uh, completely misread or or ignored. So this is just to uh, have a bit of a joke over here on top. Of yeah, no, I, I agree. I love what Charlie Munger said about EBITDA. Um, I won't repeat it exactly, but he said, uh, you know, whenever you hear that term, think of BS earnings or something like that. That's hilarious. <laughs> you can find a clip on YouTube. It's, it's really funny. Yeah, we already missed Charlie, uh, unfortunately, but there's there's so much we can learn from both uh, Warren and Charlie. And you know what, guys, it's, it's very customizable to your industry. So if it works yeah. for them, it's going to work for your business mm-hmm. also. And um, coming back a bit to uh, this being an advantage or a disadvantage, right? Because, you know, in your past, you've worked with companies of different size, different mentality. I've seen executives of different mentality. I've seen people for which numbers matter more than feelings. Uh, There's no consideration of, of aspects like attrition or churn. 
uh, there's always the sense that, you know, we can easily find folks uh, if they want to leave, leave, uh, which is very sad, uh, which is a tendency uh, that I'm seeing. But we, there are also exceptions. So let's deep dive now into your industry, because I want folks to understand and uh, and be aware of what is the difference between customer support uh, and uh, the similarities over there between customer support and player support and building a community, because this is actually, right, your strong suit over there for the gaming industry. And I want to know, how can Tony help my gaming business? Yeah, sure. So, um, you know, some of the similarities between customer service and player support, and there are a lot. I mean, you know, you have the, uh, the overall or overarching goals of making sure that your customers, and in our case, uh, both paying and non-paying uh, players are well taken care of, that whatever issues they have uh, with your product are being addressed, um, that, uh, you know, uh, that the brand is protected during these communications and strengthened if possible, which is always possible, I think. Um, and uh, to make sure that people have positive uh, impression of the company that they do you know repeat purchases i mean business is is fairly simple but very difficult to do it's it's you know in the most simple way of thinking about business i think is you're trying to get customers and then you're trying to keep them and so our teams are really focused on understanding our customers in an effort to try to keep them um, and it's, you know, marketing and, and, and publishing and, you know, all the user acquisition stuff that those teams who are trying to get people in the door, um, you know, and the game itself and the arts are, are core to the entire thing, um, the most important part. So I don't want to de-emphasize that at all, but we support the people who are continually revising the product, the, the service, the video game. Um, and we give them, I would say, if, if my teams are doing their job appropriately, we're giving them a very robust and comprehensive view of what their players are saying, but more importantly, what they're actually doing in the games so that they can think about what's the best way for them to respond or to, in some cases, anticipate. So basically, uh, it's like a loop, right? You've uh, pushed the product out there on the market so that consumers can start using it. Uh, we start monetizing on it, and then we get feedback from our users, which we eventually turn towards our developers and say, look, if you enhance this feature, add this feature, or remove this, or improve this, we might have more users and eventually be able to uh, monetize, uh, monetize more. And I think this is a huge difference uh, between uh, the two industries that you know we're representing in this conversation. <laughs> and we, we just explain the difference between them because the pressure of monetizing is extremely, extremely severe in, in your industry and adds a lot of pressure. And um, in this case, how you as a leader, you know, how do you counterbalance that? How do you protect your teams? How do you uh, slice and dice this kind of pressure so that it's manageable for others so that the overall mission is achieved? Sure. Um, 
So the question really is, how, how do I build these teams? Just so, want to be clear. Yeah, uh, how, no, uh, how do you uh, help the teams as a leader deal with the pressure uh, that is okay. out there? The pressure. The in, in uh, this industry, this. you need to monetize. Yeah. Um, I, I think it's, it's interesting. Um, I, I think personalities take pressure differently. Mm -hmm. um, for me, I don't, um, I guess it's a little bit unfair because for me, I don't tend to uh, necessarily worry too much. Um, like the, the pressure never really bothered me, but I think for my team, like it depends where the pressure is coming from. From some, For some people, especially if they're new and, and the project blows up or it gets big, one thing I've heard a lot of people ask me about is imposter syndrome. Mm -hmm. And so they feel this internal pressure from themselves that mm -hmm. they're not, uh, you know, feelings range from not feeling good enough to, you know, wow, like I've never dealt with anything this big before to, um, wow, this is uh, a lot of responsibility. And I think taking on responsibility um, has been one of the challenges that you have in modern day workplaces. Um, a lot of, you have this, you have these two things pulling in opposite directions. One is young people feel like in order to get ahead, they might have to, because it's a social media age, they might have mm -hmm. to, to oversell themselves, let's say. Mm -hmm. um, but then it's like, oh, well, everyone does that, so whatever. And so you have this pressure to oversell your stuff or to um, self-aggrandize um, because that's the culture, that's the popular culture. And then so what happens is maybe you don't spend enough time in the details um, as you've worked your way up and maybe you got promoted to a position of responsibility and that's really scaring you because um, now it's now it's on the line and your name's on the line marketing marketing is on the yeah. window you have to walk the walk now yeah yeah you have to walk the walk and helping people with with that struggle to come to a place of truth to admit to themselves and to me and to their colleagues that what do you what do you not know what do you not really understand mm -hmm. and then it be, being comfortable with that and then saying, well, what is it that you do understand? And then also being very comfortable talking about that. Because then when you say, oh, I'm good at X, there's a there's truth to it. You feel completely comfortable and confident because it's actually true. Versus, uh, yeah, you're pretending to be good at X. And you might have watched some videos, but you actually haven't handled anything yourself in this particular area. And so I think that's like, one of the most common ones that I see. Mm -hmm. Another one I think would be the fact that, especially with a creative enterprise, and this is for seasoned people who still deal with the stress, even though you know what you're doing, even though you're smart, even though your math is, is excellent, um, your problem solving skills are so solid, you know, you've done a million things in the past, there is an element whenever you're doing something that's creative where you really don't know what's going to happen, how people are going to receive a creative, you know, um, production, let's say. There's plenty of artists in the world who didn't get famous until after they died. 
right it's really terrible it's yeah. like sucks for them but it's kind of like in a way it it showcases the, the strange humor in artistic endeavors and that sometimes it doesn't make sense right away to, to mass audience where you can actually make money from it right and uh, you know video games are much more a, a mix a blending of, of art and science than people like to admit which frustrates you know accountants to no end because you know they want predictability they want repeatability etc whatever you were taught in business school you want those those things it's like how can i have a low to zero risk repeatable you know positive return on my money it's like don't 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 answer that question because you have higher chances yeah. of winning the lottery yeah exactly <laughs> right and so it's just like well but then people try to satisfy these people right because they hold the the, the, the reins of power so to speak and so you know, you're beholden to you know you make some projection and half of it's bs or whatever but you know that's that's kind of the pressure and i would say to resist the pressure for me it's really about that first element about the truth for yourself uh, working that out internally and at the same time as you continually do that because i think you always have to be doing that um working out the truth for the business and then how, how many times where we've had i've had these conversations and people don't want to hear the truth of the analysis they'd rather you paint them a rosy picture and you know if you want that kind of a consultant who's not going to actually help your company or you know help you produce better results like don't hire me <laughs> you know i'm not in It's... the business of like justifying whatever it is that you already decided free data that you want to do but that's how a lot of people operate and that's just the sad truth of, of a lot of the business world which is why you get these terrible you know projections and then results in actions and then layoffs because they were all wrong i think uh, there are some uh, golden statements that i've extracted from what you just said and uh, the answer is split between dealing with uh, let's say rookie or more beginning uh, beginners uh, type of employees over there or at a more entry level and the season one maybe mid or more experienced and uh, bottom line is with the, the first case you actually got to help them identify their strong suits and make sure that they uh, bring added value by using those and quickly identifying what they're lacking so that skill can be sharpened or be compensated by someone else in the team and b for the ones with gray hair and some experience uh, i think we need more to coach them in actually uh, understanding that some of this pressure is built by them because there's no such thing as predictability or exact predictability and, and it could be better in certain industries could be worse than others maybe it has to do also with the economic cycle that we're encountering or the seasonality but yeah there's plenty of things outside of our control right yeah With, within any company plenty of things outside of our control and but you know, yeah, yeah. to acknowledge that is really hard especially in the west yeah but it's also a key element you mentioned over there it's about seeing not what you want to see or hearing not what you want to hear but looking at facts looking at the truth accepting the truth biting that bullet and uh trying to do something constructive with it now uh 
I, I think we can both laugh. Uh, that's why I think why we that's why we laughed when we uh, when I made the statement. You know, executive listening to you, right? As a as a consultant, uh, and we we know that it's that's not the case all the time. Even if you know we have all the data, all the analytics, all the experience, and we're trying to guide them in a certain direction. Executives know best because you know they they have their own way of of looking at things. So. Tony, coming back a bit of uh, at your profession uh, and at your role, so help me narrow this down to a couple of lines. Basically, I call you if I have a product that is ready to be launched out there in the gaming industry and for which I'm trying to build a pool of fans and increase that and monetize on that but not just a one-time kill but repetitive purchases and at the same time being an ambassador for the voice of the direct user that customer so i can bring bottom-up feedback to the developers in improving that product is this correct tony yeah yeah that's certainly you know one of the uh, kind of you know customer journeys that I would say that uh, previous people have, have gone through with me. Um, I would also say, you know, that could branch off into a number of things, whether it's, um, you know, uh, advice on your, even if you're up and running already, a lot mm -hmm. of the larger corporations or larger game companies tend to have, uh, with very large organizations, a lot of inefficiencies built in. You need to optimize your operating costs figure out you know what's real what's providing real value to you what's not what's a better model for you to to operate on um, if you need supplementary outsourcing uh, you need um, you know specialized uh, a team of you know uh, let's say white glove or, or vip services or you need uh, let's say some someone to uh, because in a lot of cases the people in player support, let's say for just for example, player support or community management roles or trust and safety roles, they don't have anybody, an executive above them mm -hmm. that has hands-on experience that can actually help them mature and grow with the company. And so they're really getting kind of the short end of the stick when it comes to mentorship because there's nobody out there to really help them, you know, sharpen their practical skills. Um, and, and level up, let's say. And so um, I think that's an important thing that um, I can provide as well. I do, I've done it for a number of people outside of my own company, just in the community for years now, but people have encouraged me like, hey, you should totally like offer this as a service. Um, so that's something that's available as well. So, you know, pretty much whatever it is that you're doing for your live service game, whatever your live operation strategy is, um, you know, you can, uh, I, I'm kind of known for being able to uh, scrutinize and, and find uh, value in helping teams um, optimize how they actually operate. And um, yeah, I can even help you with um, the way that you're thinking about evaluating your, your outsourcing partners, et cetera. So providing the teams itself, helping you keep your teams accountable, helping you restructure, helping you organize, helping you plan from, from day one, you know, early on planning, because you don't need a full-time person. You just need someone you, you can 
you know, paying ad hoc or during your milestones to help with key development decisions? You know that? I, I think you touched a very sensitive topic because I don't think in my life I've ever seen a, a, a more vanilla process than uh, picking outsourcing partners. Now, if I take <laughs> the first 100 out there, their PowerPoints look the same, their yeah. numbers look the same, yes. uh, the haircut of their uh, sales executives uh, with which I'm interacting look the same. Uh, and you know, at, at a, their prices are the same. So what of yes. what what God's name are we actually doing here, Tony? How are we actually uh, churning and, and, and trying to, you know, put uh, our money where our mouth is in terms of actually selecting this best uh, vendor uh, or outsourcing partner for us? And, and thanks for bringing this in the conversation. Yeah. I mean, vendor selection, I think, is really, really um, in, a, in a sad state for, at least in my industry, for most video game companies. Um, from what I've seen, even from very, very experienced colleagues, whenever um, I've been asked to, let's say, help out another uh, department within the, the game publisher or studio, it's really, the, 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 there's like, they just do a few calls. They like ask a standard set of like short questions. Uh, if you're lucky to even get them on a call, they only have a couple of calls with you know uh, whoever is um, people know within the company or maybe their friends know. And then um, there's really not like a whole lot of you know, thoughtful criteria. Um, and yeah, like the the brief is like actually like super duper brief maybe it's like two pages long <laughs> or it's it, there's like not really a ton of work put into it um which is why a lot of places tend to hire procurement folks um, as their businesses grow but even those procurement folks are very far removed from the work that needs to be done um a lot of them might not even have done procurement for video game production before or for live service um uh, you know, outsourcing services. Are you trying to say person. that this is different from buying car parts? <laughs> yeah, very, very different, right? And so, um, you know, it's it's still, I would say, from the majority of the industry, fairly immature um, process. Maybe they don't even do an RFP, um, and uh, and and then they just kind of have these very loose conversations, um, and then they just kind of pick someone who they kind of believe the most that they think, uh, you know, can provide the most um, based on a, a few key perceptions that may or may not be correct. And so it's really a perception game, right? Which is why um, a lot of the stuff, the, the traditional sales tactics um, uh, generally all look the same. And you, know, you just gotta, you gotta convince someone to sign up and yeah, so that so the process is really muddled right now. I I would much prefer. I mean, you've seen mine, um, and it's it's different. You know, um, I think the shortest one I've ever written is like forty some pages long. 
Yeah, um, and it's it's part of why we again coming back to our conversation, why I wanted to have this uh, podcast with you because um, you know it was really standing out there, uh, and I think people underestimate the uh, scrutiny research and you know vetting that needs to go through this entire process to to get the most viable and reliable uh, outsourcing partner there for us. Look at the contractual values. We're looking at 10 million, 15 million, 20 million over the two or three yeah, yeah. years. This is this is not uh, an easy thing to move over in case you're missing or you know com- things are going completely south with this or our partner does not deliver uh, as expected, right? But Correct. but Tony, I'm I'm seeing companies. Uh, and, and managers and executives failing at even a smaller test. So I, I would say this is a big test, right? This is like a professional mm-hmm. marriage. You're going to be my professional wife or husband to help me achieve my KPIs. So you better walk the walk. Well, let's let's transfer the analogy of, a, of an RFP, which, by the way, I'm not I'm not here to you know uh, praise you in any way or have any marketing affiliation program for your programs but i gotta say it was pretty cool lecturing those 40 pages and uh it really helped me understand what you're looking for um and and i'm I'm sorry i had to give that prize but it was part of the premium of what you were looking for so now (laughs) so now so now going back at the the analogy i wanted to make I'm going to a very small exercise, a very easy kind of fruit, low-hanging fruit exercise in which we extrapolate or, or minimize the idea of an RFP to a JD. Hmm. So I talk with executives and say, I am not able to find that kind of liaison or buffer between me and my delivery team or between me and my uh, sales team. Hmm. And uh, I ask him or her, to actually uh, take two days, two days, to write what they're expecting from that person from all angles. After two days, they call me that they would need another three. (laughs) After five days, they say that it's 75% finished. And uh, I leave them for about another week, and then they say, my God, I didn't even know that I was expecting this kind of thing from the person coming to work with me until I actually took this exercise. Right? Mm-hmm. So I'm giving this example as an analogy because this is how important it is for us to actually be explicit and express our wishes and expectations so that the other can deliver. Otherwise, the other, the other one is like dead men walking. They won't be able to deliver yeah. because they don't know your uh, expectations. So just want to make this side bracket. Uh, but now to come back to how we choose this this kind of partner for us, that this professional marriage. So uh, you're the godfather here, Tony. So how do we find a bride for someone to succeed <laughs> from an outsourcing point of view? Um, are we talking about like an in, like individual JDs? No, I'm, I'm talking, I'm, I'm going back to your uh, RFP example and right okay. now, you know, the process of selecting a, an outsourcing partner for our company. Yeah, so 
some recommendations I have along those lines is, uh, and echoing a lot of what you said, it's a very serious thing. We use, a lot of game companies tend to use the term partnership, mm -hmm. um, uh, you know, quite a bit, but then I think tend to lack a little bit on the delivery of an actual partnership. And um, some of the things I think that would help people in selecting a vendor is understanding, probably the first thing is just understanding how they actually get work done. Because if you understand how a company gets work done, you, you actually understand a lot more about the culture than any cultural presentation of whatever bullet points is going to give you. Mm -hmm. I think it's important that you share your own culture or your own aspirational culture and what it is that the company's aiming for. And every single vendor is going to try to uh, do a correlation with their own stated internal values to see how it matches up. But the real, the real culture for me is found within mm -hmm. how do you execute? How do you get work done? How are people promoted? Um, how do you do your performance management? How do you do uh, PIPs if they're needed? Unfortunately, in every place they're needed. How do you offboard people? Right. So that entire process of um, I would I would say the employee life cycle. Whether if you're hiring agents, you know what's the customer service agent life cycle. If you're hiring moderators, what's their life cycle? And really understanding how the vendor. Um, executes across all of that, because that will tell you the reality of the culture um, for the employees, which are who you're going to be working with from a day-to-day -day basis, and the organization itself to see there are, there should be a lot of alignment, but nothing's ever going to be perfect, but it can't be. It's two different companies. Mm -hmm. So in the areas where it's unaligned, you have to do an evaluation to see how much friction am I going to have because of, let's say, you know, these are the 10 things I care about. These three definitely don't match, mm -hmm. but how much friction is, are those three going to cause in the lifetime of what's hopefully a long-term relationship? Um, and you really do have to scrutinize that to see if there's uh, possible ways to work around and to be upfront with the people that you're negotiating with to see that hey, these are these are what I've identified as friction points. I know you're going to tell me what I want to hear, but I I don't want to hear that. I want practical measures and plans to how we're going to address these three different points because they will cause friction. So that's actually challenging the vendor to see if they could. So every vendor says that they want to customize for the client, but how far are you willing to go? Right. Um, and, and I think that that's really important is to make that concrete. Don't leave it up in the air, because if you do, what's going to happen is the vendors just going to run the way that they know how to run things. And it might be fine for those seven areas, but for the three, it absolutely causes you problems and you never really work that out in detail. And so to be fair to the vendors, the clients have also got to be very cognizant of the differences and not just kind of blow over the details. 
Um, you really do have to scrutinize and you do have to work out and negotiate across company lines, which is very, very hard, a different way of doing business when it comes to working with you as a client. And if you're not going to constantly pay attention to those and constantly maintenance them, because anything that doesn't get maintenance deteriorates as people shuffle in and out of the organization and partners, you know, they might change business ownership, right? They might get bought out. They might, you know, um, they might have a different CEO who decides a whole bunch of things that, that have downstream effects. So you really do have to pay attention to that. And I would say that's probably the most, um, the, the key thing in the mix. And then depending on your other priorities, I mean, cost is always going to be a factor, sure. Yeah. But to understand, you know, the cost structure as much as, as possible and to be able to be upfront about um, the pressures that you know, if you are a client that you have and, um, and to understand the pressures that they have that your potential partners have on price. Um, and you know, they might not be sense, they might not share every single detail, uh -huh. but even if I would say to the vendors, even if you don't share every single detail, you need to have, um, more of an open conversation about what that is so that your potential client or your current clients understand what's happening on your side. Um, so we're talking about, you know, partnerships and that, that financial pressure is also something you need to be, you know, very cognizant of. So the culture, how actually, how things actually get done, um, the the way business is conducted, the cost structure of things. Um, I think all of that's, you know, super duper important and uh, how, how the employees feel. I mean, the actual employees themselves, you know, that, that tends to bother me. If I see a lot of negative reviews online, I'm always going to ask about it. Um, and the kinds of answer I, I receive will tell me if mm -hmm. the people really care or if they're just giving me the company line. Yeah. Um, I, uh, you, you, uh, I was, you know, just visualizing what you were saying. And on top of this, I was uh, just, you know, trying to uh, add a, a few things from, from my experience. And I think as a general rule of thumb, if I were to be a CEO, I would, I would put a rule that no one can work in sales if they didn't have experience in delivery or operation. That, that is, you know, that, that is something that I've seen. It's been 10 years now uh, since I've seen this backfire and I can see it, I continue to see it backfire. And uh, this is not only at sales, it can be also procurement. Um, so if you don't have this component, uh, you're going to make there some promises. You're going to be tempted to make some promises, especially since you're on a, on a commission over there, uh, yeah. to the, uh, that will be quite challenging for your colleagues in delivery to implement. Or you might be unaware of, you know, some of the backfires that you will uh, generate over there. Yeah. And there's no penalty for sales either, right? Because once the... That was frustrating. Time, that was frustrating. I thought it was just one company. Then I thought it was just one culture. But then I I, I saw that sales, you know, gets their, uh, gets away with anything as long as they yes. bring the clients over there. So uh, it was very frustrating for me to discover this. But 
that that there's should, no accountability and there's no organizational accountability for states. Yeah, it, it, that that should be something, or at least you know the the, the skin in the game should be for the CEO to trust these uh, guys to land these uh, jobs. Um, yeah, then there should be uh, some skin in the game over there. So that was number yeah. one. Number two that came in mind was the cultural factor. I think this was severely neglected in many occasions. And by cultural factor, I don't necessarily mean merely the cultural differences, but also the legislative uh, differences, especially mm -hmm. especially when it comes with labor law and working during holidays and, and family uh, work, life balance. Uh, and uh, attrition issues and, and that stuff. And last but not least was the uh, client sentiment. Now, I haven't met yet a client asking for a uh, split client sentiment depending on geography. Uh, depending on how they are actually building the team with that outsource partner. Because you can get blind sentiments from the U.S., which will be great. Cool. Okay. <laughs> but you're building a 24-7 business, global business with 25 languages, right? Uh, so if it's okay in U.S., that doesn't mean it's not going to backfire uh, globally. So... Yeah, that, those were the ideas that, you know, came to my mind. I said, I got to share them with Tony and see what he thinks about this, uh, this, these aspects. So those are all correct. I mean, you know, that, that U.S.-centric one is a huge problem for a lot of our companies here in the U.S. And I say this as, as an American. It's a little embarrassing for me um, uh, because uh, it, it's so painfully obvious in the way that we develop games and the way that we do community events. And there's not enough um, consideration when you have a global player base of, oh yeah, this event is at a reasonable time in the U.S., but it's like 2 a.m. for somebody else. And, <laughs> you know, they're not, they're going to miss out, you know, on the ability to get whatever cool stuff because they're going to be sleeping, you know, for a majority of the time or whatever it is. And so you have things like that that are pretty common. Um, you know, one of the things I used to laugh at because I was, I was leading an EU team before, um, the way they used to talk to us was like, like the EU was like one country. And I'm like, no, 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 no. <laughs> like, I have 14, 15 yeah. languages to manage. Yeah. I know you have one, but like, my situation is a bit different out here. I don't want to um, sound special, right? <laughs> <laughs> yeah. But, um, but it's, you know, it's, it's very interesting how this plays out in big and small ways. So for sure, all of that and, you know, all the labor law stuff. And, and here's another point. Like, I think together with that, you mentioned work-life balance. There's a lot of concern for that for internal folks at video game publishers and studios. We always talk about crunch and burnout. Mm-hmm. And every company is trying in its own way to to reduce that um, because it's really really too much sometimes. Um, but but sometimes I've seen certain companies not take the same approach to their vendor partners, 
And that bothers me as, as well. It's like, no, no, if you're gonna, if you're gonna tell them that they're an extension of your team or that's what you want, you should treat them in a similar manner uh, with the same kind of consideration and respect, right? And so um, sometimes I think that's missing from the equation as well, which is unfortunate and trying to make that clear across lines that, hey, we want to treat our employees this way. And what do you think about that? Does that, does that match with how you do things as vendor? Um, and to make that explicit, again, if, if nothing's explicit, if you say in general that you want to help people or that you want to be a good business partner, but you never um, articulate it, it's never down in writing somewhere and you don't talk about it ever outside of those high level meetings, it's not going to be real. It's just not. Yeah. Um, I was, I was just thinking, uh, based on what you said that you're kind of in the sweet spot between, uh, pre-sales and post-sales at any company that we would actually go. And, uh, I think it's kind of, it, it's still a pioneer in this direction because everyone cares about the sale, right? Selling, yeah. putting out there. But what happens before someone decides to make a purchase or after someone has made a purchase and uh, them becoming the ambassadors for that product? I think it's sometimes, I think there's no capacity or maturity there out there on the market for us to actually think of this as being equally important with selling the product or even more important in some cases. And uh, you, you being in this position, which are the top skills do you think you need to actually be successful in this role? Sure. Um, number one, I would say being a really fluent communicator is going to help you, whatever role that it is. I think communication as a general skill is um, mm -hmm. excuse me, super downplayed. Very, very important because you you have tons of stakeholders. You're going to be able to communicate well with every single one of them. You're going to learn need to learn how to speak their language, so that you can present information in a way that's going to land for each and one, uh, each and every one of those different um, groups. So whether it's a group of devs, um, you know, do you know your entire company's tech stack for the game? Um, do you know the backend tech stack? Do you know how everything connects and flows and works? So just that kind of communication and, and then that, you know, together with that, a, a good general knowledge, you don't have to be a software developer, but you should have a, a good general knowledge of, you know, uh, how, what stuff is and, and how it all connects, right? Um, do you know what a webhook is? Do you know what APIs are? Do you know how, what a data lake is, you know, all this stuff connects, you know, what a data warehouse is, like, et cetera, et cetera. So like, there's all these um, things that you should have a decent working knowledge of how does stuff actually work. Um, and then I would say beyond that, that knowledge and those communication skills, uh, really a solid, a solid understanding of basic statistics. Uh, I, I can't tell you how often I've seen data abused in meetings, um, even at the very highest levels in the company, where people are pulling out data and telling whatever stories that they want. And saying, I hate to be that guy, but you know, once in a while, I'll just, not every time, but once in a while, I'll just stick up my hand and be like, 
where'd you get that? And what is this? And where I'll be like, it actually doesn't say that. Um, you know, and so it's a good working knowledge of statistics and learning how to pull good inferences from statistics. I think that's a, an additional skill because you can pull the wrong inferences from data. So um, really important, especially in our day and age, if you're working in business, you got to have a handle on stats and what they actually mean. Because these days, everyone's getting fooled by the way stats are presented, the way data is presented. You see it in the news, you see it in our general culture, you see it on social media, and you see it in the workplace, right? There's tons of data abuse in the workplace to, sometimes I believe it's like, oh, I didn't know that at all. It's like, well, yeah, people were presenting like data to you, but they were present like they were presenting it in a way that was deceptive, right? Um, instead of showing you the truth. Uh, and so sometimes I'm the bearer, well, many times I'm the bearer of quote unquote bad news, but I think for me, I'm very positive. I think you turn anything around, but it's not bad you news, but you're cutting down, yeah, you're you're cutting down through your job. It's your role to cut down inflation and infatuation of things, right? Uh, yeah, yeah, you got to get to the heart of the matter, right? If you're very serious about actually gaining customers and keeping customers and, and growing a sustainable business over time, um, you, you have to pay attention to reality and to try to get at reality as much as possible. So I think... You know, those three skills are, are really the top ones, uh, you know, for the job. Um, I think if you, if you want to go a little bit deeper, a couple of other things you might be able to go into would be um, studying like work systems, how to project management, how does work actually get done. Um, and then uh, it would probably be good for you to brush up on, on law, just like legal, because you know how it is, like you get lots of legal contracts, you have to decipher them, you have to negotiate them. If you're always running to your lawyers, like it's just gonna be annoying for them. But if you can massage a contract to the point where you hand it to your legal team and they, they browse it over and they only have maybe, you know, ideally none, but maybe, you know, very, very few red lines for negotiations, then you know, that's good for you as well. It's good for your, 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 your legal teammates, but you, you should know what's in the law. And, um, you know, you, you mentioned it earlier, labor laws, et cetera, right? Like how to, if you, if you don't know what those are, you can't protect your people from abuse. So you should know what, what the laws are. And, and that's being a leader that, you know, considers what happens with the folks that come work with him or her, uh, around him or her or under him or her. And uh, I want us also to touch at, upon uh, empathy and emotional intelligence um, because now you know th those are quite great skills over there, and I think this one is very uh, popular these days. A lot of people talk about it. The reason I want to bring in discussion is because I want to hear your version about these two together. Uh, instead of, you know, taking the general definition, because I, I believe they are kind of tailored and a mirror of someone's character. Yeah, empathy and emotional intelligence. I, I don't like the term emotional intelligence, but I understand what people are, are trying to get at when they use it. Um, for me, it's just, um, you know, I think the, the, the term mm -hmm. I was most used to using is oh that's a people person right like they're really good with people and um 
there's a lot that goes that goes into that. Well, mm -hmm. you know, empathy I think is certainly one of the keys, but you can't um, empathy is not like a like a switch that you turn on. Yeah. Right. There's a lot of other things connected to it. You actually and they're they're deeply personal things, which I'm not I'm not sure whether or not I can require it from someone in a professional uh, setting. But what I would say is um, I would hope that the people I hire would have enough of a developed sense of um, of care for others and warmth that they would they would try to consider what kinds of effect that their words and actions have on other people. I, based on what you said, I would even uh, streamline it up to the event that, listen, if you had any tangency with Christianism or go back into your religion, if there is something there that says, when you do something, don't step over dead bodies, consider <laughs> others around you. Or, or think of what would be your reaction if someone would behave that way. And, and don't do it. <laughs> or do it then once you've read it through this process. I think you have an emotional intelligence that is way, way better than, than others that know the entire theory. Yeah, it, it reminds me of there's this interview I saw once. I forget who it was. A very famous um, executive and then later on investor, but he was telling a story where he was interviewing somebody, I think for a VP role or something, mm -hmm. or, or maybe even a C role, C level role. But he said in the interview that he asked a question about, oh, if you saw a, you know, a baby on the street, like what would you do? And he got some kind of BS answer and he said, sorry, like we won't be continuing the conversation <laughs> because you should have just picked the baby up and, and, hold, and held it. <laughs> and try to find where the parents are. Like it's very it's not a trick question, right? Um, and I think there's you know really something to that that you're trying to like, interviewing people, trying to find the humanity in the candidate, and um, you know, and, and in the person, and for yourself, like developing um, developing that maturity where life is much more than just about your base needs. Yeah. Because I think that's what's being very like pushed right now through a lot of social media is like this like narcissism and selfishness that just says, well, get mine as soon as I can, as fast as I can, as much as I can, and screw, you know, everything else. And it's like, no, I don't ever want to work with somebody like that. And I don't want ever want somebody like that with authority over me. That they're they're unworthy to hold like a leadership position, but we have so many of them today. And it's like this really big yes. problem. Because, you know, we look at the results only. Those kind of characters might get to the numerical results, but that doesn't mean that if we look to their churn, the level of fear and stress of people working under them, the level of attrition, how people mistrust each other or you know how they how they tend to manage that entire thing. We, maybe we won't see any positive uh, vibe from there or positive thing or outcome. Yeah. But they still deliver results, right? And for some, that's all that matters. Well, the the reality is that they push other people to deliver those results, 
And what you get over time is um, if, if that is what's being pushed down from the very top, you get a culture eventually where lies are everywhere and, you know, um, you will have people stabbing each other in the back fairly often, especially at the top level. So your executives aren't building a long-term strategy for your company anymore. They're playing politics. And they're just trying to, you know, push people to do certain things that are out of character and, um, you know, forcing other people to have undue stress and, and shed their humanity. And we never, ever count the societal effects for doing something like this. If every company takes this route, society suffers massively because no one will trust anybody anymore. No one will trust any information anymore. And then you get a reversion into tribalism because people will absolutely narrow the amount of you know people that they can generally trust about anything. And we never count these kinds of, you know, that's all considered collateral damage or an externality, um, which is like convenient technical speak for, yeah, you're you don't care about the fabric of society you don't care what happens outside of that sheet where you get to bring home more money that's not okay for society and so i think but the people at the bottom you know or even in the middle won't see the majority of that um and so you see a lot of symptoms right now where you have riots globally yeah. you know across a lot of you know the civilized uh, west and um, you know, unionization here in the U.S. and for what I would consider to be very good reasons, it's because they can't take it anymore, right? And I think that's the inevitable road you go down when you manage business and do business in this kind of manner. It's out there, guys. It's sad, but you know, if if each of us can change something for the positive over here, we invite everyone in this exercise and. Uh, that should be maybe more uh, more satisfying than any other achievements that day. That you know you did you did something better for your colleague and uh, others working under you if you're a manager. Um, coming back a bit to analytics and interpreting data, uh, one piece of advice I know we discussed this separately, but I'm gonna bring it uh, as a segue over here um, is going to the trenches, right? If you want to get accurate data, if you want to read between the BS, go into the trenches. So guys, don't just take the Excel sheet, go into the trenches. Now, um, so very interesting. I think we built our short list of what actually it takes uh, for us to succeed uh, in, in this industry. Uh, I'm sure there are many other ingredients over there in this babka that we actually forgot to put in, but hopefully it would turn out to be a very good cinnamon babka if we follow the recipe that we have in hand right now. <laughs> um, but in terms of leadership, um, I'm going a bit in, in my area as, as a management consultant, and uh, I tell people that, you know, when they ask, so look at, look at this company, this is my company, what can what can you actually do to help my company, right? And without looking at anything, I just uh, just build a narrative in which I tell them, I am here to help you deal with the unpleasant, 
unwelcome and unplanned events that will hit your business for sure. It's just a matter of time. And they look at me and they're shocked and say, oh my God, are you doing some sort of voodoo? Are you trying to attract some negative things within my business? And um, what I, you know, what I came to realize is that people always look at someone when they solve a problem with the idea of eradicating risk, but they neglect the fact that they might help them as executives navigate through risk. Because you cannot mm -hmm. eradicate risk, right? No. If, if we could eradicate risk, there would be no need for me or you. Not if you're doing business. <laughs> no. Business no. equals risk. Yeah, and, and no matter how many textbooks over there uh, we read or how many seminars we take, life is so unpredictable. And we don't even have to work or have a business to realize that it's Correct. unpredictable. You know, one of our relatives can die or uh, fall of a severe illness. and they never smoked in their life, right? So if that happens in, in personal relations, what about the uh, business? So I want us to, um, you know, discuss a bit on how you see things, the relationship between leadership and risk over here and the idea of mitigating or navigating through risk. Mm, I, I think you have to do both. I think... Um, to your point, navigation is very, very underplayed right now, and it is so very needed because the world is only becoming more complex. We think about top line things like, you know, generative AI, et cetera. Mm -hmm. um, but uh, so in terms of navigation, I think most leaders are very poorly equipped to navigate, especially due to the business school and business management trends that we have that, that love formulas. And don't get me wrong, formulas are good. I'm not trying to poo-poo on everything. And a lot of those fundamentals are super duper important to understand and to track in many cases. But um, the unpredictability of life and being able to respond appropriately in time, we just saw a catastrophe with COVID. Right? I mean, what a disaster for most, like 99% of governments out there, right? Complete, you know, incompetence. Um, and that's because I believe there's been a ton of management influence that is way too linear and rigid and doesn't know how to deal with man managing complexity. See, anyone listening, if you want a beginner's course on this, I can't think of a better person to recommend to you than a gentleman named Dave Snowden. He has a company called the Canevern uh, Company, and um, I've watched, he has a ton of stuff on YouTube, and I've actually worked with this company before on a couple of projects, and mm. I, I've, I've hired them myself, and so really, really great resource, but, but they teach a very easily understandable and digestible um, framework for you to approach complexity management that governments and militaries have now, you know, I would say in recent years, really begun to dig into just because it makes much more sense than something like a Six Sigma or something like that. It's mm -hmm. very rigid and commercialized and, and I would say cultish in a way. And so um, I highly recommend that. Um, and people who know me know why I recommend that to all my, I actually make my teams watch it. Like if you directly report to me, like you have to. 
So, you know, really dealing with it and, and complexity, you know, dealing with true complexity, just to give a little bit of a sneak peek into that world, really has to do with the, the beginning is the admission that you don't know the right answer. And that's already hard for most executives that you don't know the answer. Why? Because it's actually complex. There's no direct cause and effect. And so what you're going to have to do is run a bunch of parallel experiments and figure out what actually works and what doesn't. And something will emerge from that complexity that you can, you know, after some time, after you understand it, yeah, you can, you can, you, you can simplify it. But in that moment where you don't understand, just admitting that you don't know is so hard for most leaders that I meet. I, whenever I meet a leader that admits, I ask them a question and they admit to me they don't know, it's impressive for me. It's unfortunate, but it's impressive for me because I, I'm like, wow, you're actually an honest executive. It's very few of you. It's very so, disarming at the same time, right? Because you're about to criticize their work and there's no need yeah. for that. Right, because they they completely uh, confessed over there, and I'm sure those yeah. are rare occasions. <laughs> yeah, yeah, they're rare, right? And so I, you know, as a consultant, a lot of times I have to tiptoe around that, um, just to kind of test the water, see how they are. But I'm I'm the kind of person who's going to bring it up. So I think you're wrong with this, or this is where you're making mistakes for sure. Um, the other part of it, in terms of mitigation, is I think the world we know already. Mm -hmm. um, it's very, very kind of well-documented versus like, cool, like you, you know what's coming and then you can sort of prepare yourself beforehand, but mitigation can never prepare you for, uh, you know, a, a, a disaster per se. Um, even I remember COVID as an example, right? Like I, I, one of the things I asked from all of my partners was to review their, their BCPs, their business continuity plans, right? And I was like, wow, you guys have nothing in here for pandemics. Um, and then on top of that, I said, you have nothing for uh, massive, like, geopolitical strife, right? Or, um, or like, uh, like, like riots. And they're like, it's like civil unrest. And they're like, what are you on about? And I'm like, yeah, you know, civil unrest. You weren't very far comes, away. <laughs> the thing, the thing that comes after pandemics and they're like, what are you on about? And I'm like, no, seriously, like. Civil unrest always comes after pandemics, and if you're gonna, you know, shut down economies for years, you don't expect any negative consequences. I mean, come on! But it just shows you, even in mitigation, there's very little like lateral thinking, critical thinking when it when it comes to even the mitigation. It's all very standardized, and it's not very comprehensive in many cases, and so we find ourselves even in the cases where we should have a little something planned, very terribly prepared in general. And it's not like these people aren't, they're very smart. I'm sure they all have, like a lot of them, very high IQ. It's not about intelligence. It's about, you know, really just being able to stomach the right questions and to be able to entertain different ways of thinking about the problem space. Um, and really being willing to take a step out. And sometimes, yeah, your idea is really dumb. It's, it's okay. Like, you know, something we could learn from all of our own childhoods and from our children is to not be overly embarrassed to just say what they think. Um, yeah. I think that's a terrible consequence of growing up is stifling that inner voice too much. 
it's terrible. If you have a question, ask it. I hope you will put some of this in your book. I heard you're working on, you know, <laughs> on that that book, and uh, I look forward on it. And uh, I, I I know from other discussions with you that you know mitigating risk and navigating risk and sharing from your experiences it's a big part of it. Um, so uh, I hope you will also touch the topic of radical candor and how that can backfire for a consultant. Yeah, I have a couple of funny stories to that to uh, to actually share. Yeah. But um, you know, uh, let's let's now transition towards a scenario in which. Uh, so we talked about us. Well, we need to succeed. We found a, a client to represent. We actually brought in a vendor. Now we have to go back to our teams and uh, the, the pressure of KPIs, digesting KPIs uh, for someone working in the front line over there is, is tremendous. I, I, I've seen people break, not because they can't do the job, it's because they just, you know, they, they get suffocated by looking at MTS and CSAT and, and average handling time and they, they, they're completely unnatural they fail and they're fired uh, and it, that's not fair so um, we once touched the topic that I like to keep simple and stupid uh, and, and also encourage some creativity yes. and then go back to the client and say listen I, you're, you're not happy about the average ending time but look at the MPS over there I'm doing a fine job uh, I'm sure your boss can cut some slack over there if he sees these uh, these results but I want to hear from you. Um, so, what exactly do you try to do to make it, you know, easier for everyone to achieve these KPIs? Um, a, a couple of things. I would say um, number one is to slightly, because of the environment, to actually slightly de-emphasize them however I can. So if I'm the mm -hmm. client side, I try to say, yeah, we have targets, but there are, I'm not gonna, um, unless, like, I'll set, like, a really low bottom floor, unless it, like, really drops beneath this, there's not gonna be any, so there's no financial penalty penalties around it. So the, a lot of the I would say artificial pressure is off mm -hmm. in the environment um, because something that always happens is if you put like really high targets and you uh, you know right at the edge and then you 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 push for financial penalties if it ever drops below that you're actually in um, for many game companies they say oh we want you to be natural we want you to you know, uh, just do the right thing or common sense. But then if you impose something so constraining as a, you know, KPI penalty and you and you place it right at the edge instead of, you know, like way, way far away where actually that's, a, that's actually a problem and you're actually being negligent, then, um, then you get a lot of the dysfunctions that you see and so a lot of clients don't see themselves as part of the problem but a, a lot of times they are um, because they're blindly pushing towards kpis instead of mm -hmm. what i like to focus people on is the top line which is what what what's the i want people to have 
a great experience and how am I going to define that? I want to make sure that we resolve any issues that they have and any maybe adjacent or surrounding issues that are related to that issue. I want to make sure that they feel like if they have a complaint that they were listened to and that the person cares about their situation. I want them to be able to get back into the game as quickly as possible after all of those things are taken care of. Um, and I want them to have as low friction as a service experience as possible. And that's what I care about. And so those are, you know, qualitative, those are ways of describing how you would like the experience to go and to have, give people the freedom to be able to think about that on their own as reps about how they're going to provide that kind of experience. Right. And so it's, you, you really want to, um, for me and, and my teams, is focusing them on what is it that you actually want to deliver at the end of the day? And then let's see where the KPIs land when we're delivering that. And so KPIs are, people forget, those are lag measures. Those are massive downstream lag measures. Like, and so what you really want to do is pay attention to, you know, your, your, your lead indicators and the things, the behavioral systems and processes and policies, et cetera, and the way you do quality, whatever it is, and training, you really want to pay attention to these behavior, these systems that govern behavior versus just narrowly focusing on get that number up however you can. Because if you yeah. just push that, you get cherry picking, you get all that dysfunctional other kinds of stuff that we see. You get people passing it's, it's off. It's not natural, right? It, right. It, it's not their fault. It's not natural. And you gave them a numerical target, no matter what, disconsidering their feelings, their struggles, their blockers. Uh, yeah. So they're going to give you that in return. And if you're going to discover that they've cut some steps, taken their some shortcuts, did some illicit things, that can break that contract, it, it's no surprise. I mean, you yep. should have, you should have seen that, uh, as a, yeah, please. Yeah, correct. I mean, don't get me wrong. Like KPIs are important. And I would tell people like, like, yeah, we have them and they give us signals to where we should dig deeper, but they, they, they shouldn't be the end all be all. Right. And some people get, it's really challenging because you have, you need a performance management system in place. But at the same time, like how you administer and how you uh, conduct those performance evaluations really does matter. Yeah, you have to have one, but the manner in which you do it is also extremely important. And so sometimes people forget that and they can't, they can't, um, it's hard for them to process that. Uh, certain performance management systems actually decrease in value over time as your operation matures and as the general performance level you know kind of flattens out um it's it's much more about um, this other stuff that we talked about earlier um, that'll help people get there one funny thing that comes in mind is i was i've taken over a, a new team uh, and I, I realized that they were quite scattered and uh, in their way of working. And uh, it was a mid-manager level team. And uh, I asked them, what is your biggest frustration? 
why aren't you able to deal with your job and uh, the responsibilities associated with with it because they were performing under and they said the fact that others interrupt me and i was laughing and i said well that's the life of a manager um others interrupting yeah. you is like saying i'm having cereals for breakfast right um but i asked them then what do you do first thing that you come in the office and back in those days i was uh, streamlining on a i actually managed to build a planner that regardless of the teams that i'm working with i have this planner uh, and we follow that planner so that we speak the same language <clears throat> so the entire idea of that planner is what must i remove as blockers for others at the beginning of the day so that i can work in peace or as peaceful as possible so the entire productivity has radically changed because i came at work as a manager mid manager team lead project manager thinking and knowing what might erupt and proactively sat down with the people in charge to actually prepare them for that moment give them the tools of what is required and surprise surprise they 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 slowly gained half a day and then about 65% of that day for themselves to actually do things um mm -hmm. and i and i think this goes back to not following you know some sort of lean six sigma methodologies it's actually understanding that as a leader you need to serve first and to eat last and if you're not going to serve you're not going to eat because life will find a way to keep you busy continuously <laughs> Yeah, yeah, no, absolutely. Like you have to, as a manager, like if you're managing, if I was back managing frontline teams, the question that I generally ask my direct reports has held steady throughout my career, which is what is preventing you from doing your job as best you can? And getting honest answers from my people, because everyone likes to complain. <laughs> and yeah. uh, you know being able to then take that information and go get things fixed for my people because whatever stands in the way of their productivity or getting the answers they need or they have to wait on somebody else for two days because this is the way the process is yeah. <laughs> um, removing those roadblocks and seeing coming up with ways observing how people work and seeing if there's a suggestion that I could make. Like this one time, this way long mm -hmm. time ago, one of my people was had a habit of having YouTube on while doing their work. And I said, hey, um, can you try something for me? Can you just turn that off? And you can have music on, but don't don't have there was like esports or whatever. I was like, no, 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 no. <laughs> No, 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 no. I was like, hey, just, just turn that off. You can have music on or whatever, whatever background stuff you need that's not going to bother you. But yeah. um, try not to have other people talking on because the, the reality and the way that I convinced this person was the reality our brain has very small kind of bandwidth. You can't, and the language processing, like you can't hear, you can't be doing two language related things at the same time. There's no way. You can't talk to two people at once, right? That's why we always have to, no, no, no. If you have, you know, if you have more than one kid, you're like, hey, just no, you go first. <laughs> um, we just can't. 
it's an inability that human beings have um, because of the way we process language. So it's just like, look, just turn that off. And yeah, I mean, things got much better for that person after that. But, you know, observe your team, how they actually work, make some friendly suggestions, ask them questions about what's getting in the way, observe, because sometimes they might not, because they, they're routine, they might not know that mm -hmm. something's a problem. And so if you're watching them, you're like, wow, all of you have to open like seven windows. This is ridiculous. Like, how about we get this down to like two or three? Let's see if there's a way I can do that, right? And so you see it as an outside observer as a manager, and you can go to other technical teams or your partner or whatever and ask for some help to get things um, improved to, to make work the work environment better. Um, but yeah, that that kind of like general observation and solutioning on behalf of your employees is always needed. I mean, good good managers get things out of the way and and help make people's jobs uh, easier and more enjoyable and all of that stuff. Yeah. And actually, this is a partial answer to my next question over here because I was about to go and build a scenario with you in which we actually took a new project and we have to make a diagnosis of the health of our team, the health of our project, the health of our delivery capacity. And uh, the first thing based on, you know, building on what you just said right now, what we're looking at is trying to understand how things are being done over there between folks. But what else, what else, Tony, do you look at in order to understand where we are right now and how are we going to get where we actually want to be or can be? Mm. Yeah, I think um, there's a couple things. One is the, the language that the team uses, I think, is one of the early things I pay a lot of attention to. Is it primarily negative, um, you know, as it relates to work? Um, how do they talk about customers that they're actually helping? Do they... Do they actually make fun of them? In some cases, I've, I've actually seen this where there's a, there's like a wall. That's really terrible practice. But, you know, um, how do they talk about customers? How do they talk about each other? How do they talk about work? Um, and you can piece together a lot from that. What are the relationships like between the individuals on the team? Do you see people getting along? Do you see a, a niche, cliche, you know, click group forming? Do you see... Um, people excluding other people. Do you see um, someone on, you know, conversely being extremely helpful? Um, you know, do you see natural leaders in the group? Uh, you know, paying attention to that dynamics. How are people interacting with each other, both during work and then both, you know, during their break times? Who goes to work with who, etc. All this kind of human relationship mm -hmm. aspects. Um, what do they do after work? Do they ever hang out together? Um, you know, do they know each other outside of the office or not? It's not required, but it's just interesting to, to know, to observe. Because a lot of times, like, if you work with friends, work in general is stickier. There's all these, like, funny memes out there about your work bestie. And so, um, you know, those are important dynamics to at least understand and pay attention to. Um, I would say uh, as well, kind of, the attitude towards work is it is it something who on the team looks looks at work as a craft to be mastered who looks at at it just as a job which is also okay as long as they delivered um who 
just looks at it as a drag, right? So you see their jobs. <laughs> what is and a bus until the next job? <laughs> right, right, right. <laughs> right, all, all that kind of stuff, right? It's, 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 um, is there someone like un, uncomfortably um, trying to curry your favor, even though you're new, et cetera? So um, there's all that kind of stuff. There's human, human stuff to pay attention to, the actual delivery too, right? We just talked about metrics. So yeah, I would look at those. Just as a marker, not necessarily as the end-all be-all, but hey, is there anything here that stands out in the data? And not just the KPIs, but like if a, if a, if a company I think is doing, um, really cares about its people, it will have additional data. Um, it might be just qualitative observations, um, but they will, they will have information about any team's um, general performance or behaviorisms. And it would mm -hmm. be interesting to look at those and see what those have been historically and, and, and more recently. Um, yeah, and so, you know, the, the, all of those things, their, their actual work, their delivery of those things is, is primary. Um, but in addition to that is all of the human relationships within that team and how they talk about each other and their future in the company, right? Water cooler conversations and any memes you can dig up. Chinese whispers. <clears throat> yeah, it's very important. <laughs> uh, yeah, I was uh, I was looking over my notes over here with respect to what you were saying and what I was, um, you know, writing down. Uh, cascading this, this and then spillover topics that are not necessarily on our agenda, but I think they're interesting. Uh, I think, you know, that we look at this a very human centric characteristic to your management style, I would say, or consultant um, kind of style. But sometimes we have to take like harsh decisions uh, yeah. and, and it involves, you know, like sprinkling up and basically, in in my role, this is something that I I've never escaped. So it was like a necessary evil. It was like something that needed to be done. And I was curious to see if this is something that it's by default the standard in your industry. Also, whenever you take a new client, do you have to start sprinkling up? You have to say goodbye to a few folks. Uh, do executives listen to you when such radical decisions need to be taken? Uh, yes, unfortunately. Um, I'm not sure if I would say that it's evil in every single case. Um, I, I try not to do evil things, but I think, I know what you mean by the sense of It's a hard thing to do. It's a hard thing to fire people because it means that they have to go out and search for something else. And they've, they're going to have additional stress in their lives. And that's really hard. And it might, in some cases, it might be a really bad time to do so for them personally. Yeah. And we don't know about that, but, but it happens anyhow. And that's extremely unfortunate. But um, yes, it's been a part of almost every single consulting gig unless it's a like a fresh start um like they don't have anybody on the team yet yeah tabula rasa uh, 
Greenfield. Yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah. You can get a clean slate and that's fine. But in most cases, there, there usually are either a few, sometimes a lot, that do have to be let go. They do have to be fired. And, you know, um, I would say that a lot of it is to the, the core root that I found in every single case is always leadership. There's either mismanagement or there hasn't been enough performance management or there's been some kind of negligence or even just ignorance. So you had somebody you put into the position to try to do the job, but they actually had no context. So it's not their fault that they failed necessarily because they were set up to fail. They didn't, they didn't know what they were doing, right? And so sometimes that happens as well. But yeah, you, you have to let people go and you have to have those difficult conversations. And a lot of times people do have to be um, do have to be fired because they were technically, I don't want to make this a personal thing at all, but just incapable of handling whatever job that they were supposed to be doing. Basically, it's a very good business card for their manager also. Uh, yes. So for me, it's always a package exit because... Uh, if that manager has actually failed so bad in building a team, giving him another chance after, you know, he's done that for five years. Uh, I don't I don't really think in those kind of second chances. And, uh, okay, you might have been lucky. Especially not if it's been like five years. You would be surprised. You would be surprised. Tony, you would be surprised. And I'm talking about, Three, uh, you know, you know, three hundred, four hundred, five hundred million companies uh, annual revenue. How much does it matter to actually, uh, you know, rise in the company with the current executive uh, at the same time, or be best pals within the department, or be the oldest in the department while being named a manager? But that doesn't mean you're going to be a good manager. Uh, well, relationships and nepotism are you just mentioned them you just mentioned them diplomatically at a very you know entry level position <laughs> you know like looking at a team but hey guys it's not only at entry level it continues to be so we gotta we gotta call that out with radical candor and and uh, make executives take the decision that uh you know they had to hire us. Uh, yeah, the because it, it looks bad on them too, right? Like <laughs> if you have a nepo hire and they weren't able to ever sort of get it together, and if you are the top leader and you don't do anything about that, people are fine with the rules or whatever laws that you have in place so long as they're equally enforced to all people. Mm -hmm. That's why we have the rule of law. And if you skew that that mechanism in your own company, and it's very visible for everybody to see that you clearly are playing favorites and have nepo hires that are useless, um, and you don't do anything about it, you reduce your own moral standing and leadership authority within your own company. You will that will be the result, and the more you do that the more people will not actually respect you and the worse off your company will be. And so, you know, it, it's just very clear. And executives aren't used to people talking to them in this frank manner, but I'll say it. I'll say it. That's, that is what 
you do. It's very normal. If you put yourself in the shoes of a very competent employee and you witness this kind of stuff happening, don't tell me that it wouldn't demotivate you. Absolutely, it's demotivating to have somebody above you who is technically incompetent and unable to do their job. It doesn't inspire confidence and leadership. And, you know, you can build your echo chamber if that's what you want to do with your money, but that will not build a lasting company. Yeah, amen to that. <laughs> uh, that that's so true. Um, I was, uh, I was uh, thinking of us going a bit back to the people working under us or looking at us for different solutions and, and uh, ways to become better and more efficient and come with more joy at their workplace. And I wanted to ask you, uh, which do you think are the best financial and non-financial incentives to actually get one, someone to excel in their role? Mm. non-financial we'll start with that it's a little bit easier mm -hmm. um you know we, we <laughs> not know many executives that. say that <laughs> <laughs> yeah non-financial is easier that that's kind of uh, an antichrist over there so non-financial is, is. well it's it's easier in terms of of the actual money and and the fact that we know that intrinsic motivation is like very much stronger than extrinsic motivation and so it's a little bit easier in terms of the, the capital requirement but it has much more to do with um, investment from a mentor mm -hmm. it could be your direct manager and ideally it would be but it doesn't have to be you can have more than one and um, I, i've had the privilege of, of, of mentoring people outside of my department um, in various companies and um, continue to do so um, even after we've, we've, we've left our work relationship. Um, and that's wonderful. That really helps if someone feels like you can be a mentor to them. And I'm talking to all the older experienced people out there, like give back your time, your energy to mentor someone. Again, mean a world of difference to a young person. And or, really or maybe, great. yeah, or maybe you wanted this when you had the opportunity could not find it now you see it in front of you and you ignore it and making someone yeah. else leave that same painful uh experience that you had correct correct and so you can really do a lot of good there i think um uh, part of that is you know when you build incentive programs you could fill it with a lot of intrinsically motivating things so it's it's time with maybe there's an executive in the company that really has a tight schedule but you've gotten them to agree to have an hour meeting you know 30 minute or an hour meeting with you know um, an entry-level um, you know employee that, that has performed well to say nobody gets this person's time but you have an hour of it right like yeah. people have to pay for this like you know people people are dying to have a meeting with this person in the company you get an hour because you've done well, right? Um, like things, programs like that, you know, giving them um, books that the organization thinks is extremely helpful in understanding mm -hmm. the company, the company leadership culture and how it works. So it's like, cool, leadership reads, like C-level leadership reads a couple of books together every year. It's like, cool, like, why don't you give those out? Like the CEO has a top 10 read list. Like, great, why don't you give those, buy a bunch of those, and give them out to employees when they do well. There's like these kinds of 
you know, um, you can invest in a certification for them because you're investing in their mastery. So it's like, yeah, it costs you a little money, but, you know, that's more intrinsic than it is extrinsic, right? Because you're investing in them. It's more about mastery and like them learning new skills um, rather than the typical extrinsic stuff, which is, yeah, let me give you some money, right? I'll give you a bonus. I'll give you a video, you know, in our world, I'll give you a video game system, right? You'll win a PS5 or whatever, or an Xbox, or you'll win a gaming PC mm -hmm. or whatever. And that's all fine. I'm not necessarily saying those things are bad because I've, I've, you know, given out those kinds of rewards before for, for top performers, but it can't only be that. I think it's really important to think about um, the other stuff as well. And even for the extrinsic stuff, I think it's really important that like you're careful about like how you distribute those. So even if it's like a financial bonus, right? Like you got to think carefully about like um, maybe creative ways in which you could not be explicit about it up front so that the people doing it, doing it for the right reasons. And then you give it to them as a surprise, right? No one's going to be upset about a surprise bonus. <laughs> no, no, I've, I've never encountered you know I mean? someone that <laughs> said, oh my God, I'm so shocked, I'm not going to take it. Are you, are right, you... right. So it's a slightly <laughs> different way to go about that extrinsic <clears throat> motivation, but you know, you because you were secretive about it, let's say, up front, and you delayed the delivery of it, like it's, and then they're, oh, what the heck is this for? And then you have a conversation when you reward it to the person, they're like, oh, wow, this is like, this is, that was just them being them. Right, and they got rewarded for being themselves, for being diligent, for paying attention to the details, doing all this stuff, and you, you know, you rewarded them for it. And I think that's um, that's a little bit better way of thinking about extrinsic stuff. And I think you know uh, when involving money is is you know very standard. I, I think everybody can do it. But basically, you just broke it down into two scenarios. You either give them your time under the form of showing care, like a direct call with you or meeting with you, time with you, barbecue with you, uh, thinking of them, sharing your books or anything else, or you have to give them more money. Um, and, you know, that's that doesn't really show too much uh, involvement. But I want us to touch a sensitive topic right here. Personally, I believe that a fixed salary is a guaranteed killer in this industry. Um, and I've seen frustrations after frustrations, some working hard, some working, you know, just so that tomorrow comes and they get the same salary. Mm -hmm. And, uh, I've also seen situations in which new hires are paid better than the old hires, uh, <laughs> or existing That's employees. Yeah. And I want us to talk a bit about these two realities. Mm. Yeah, I mean, that second scenario you mentioned just should not happen unless it's a completely different role, right? Um, but if, it's, if we're talking about the same role, that's just absolutely terrible. Um, I think it's really important that companies think carefully about how they structure pay at, the, at their jobs, how they structure promotions, because I think most industry standards are pretty lazy. Um, mm -hmm quote-unquote best practice lazy templates and there's not a lot of thought put into um, neither the the 
the idea of motivation as a human thing, but also the specifics of the particular client company that is um, that's being considered. And so there's a number of different ways you could slice it, but there have been a no, there have been many proven experiments to show that there's um and you could even take a cue from video games, I think, mm-hmm. you know, how to think about progression and leveling up and how that actually works out in the numbers for the employees. There was this one study, I, I can't remember if it was a Zappos study or not, but it was something, I think it was Zappos. They said um, what they did was they took the old model for their call center and then they split all of the roles in half, like half the time to get. So it's like you, you split, it used to take two years to get here, but then you split it and there's two different roles now and it takes one year to get here and one year to get next. And even though the pay ended up being working out exactly the same at the end of the day, the happiness was much higher. It was because you are climbing ladder, aren't you? Yeah. As time you, you goes by, yeah. as time goes by, and uh, I think career progression is something that is deeply underestimated as a as a need uh, in terms of you know uh, getting employees and making sure they stay with you. Uh, mm-hmm. For a few years, if not for a very long time. But these days, honestly, 18 months, two years is quite a performance. So <laughs> that's why I said for a few years. I consider that to be a, uh, a performance. But do you do you but do you do you see things the same way? I mean, it shouldn't be a fixed salary. It should be like a variable component over there. It, it should you know reward the proactive guys and you know the best performing guys. How do you see things over there? I, I do think that there is, um, it's important to have a base expectation so that people understand what the base is. Um, bonuses might not always be available. It really depends on how the business is structured, but I would say um, it, it needs to be both in terms of the formal structures, but then also in terms of additional value provided to the company. Mm-hmm. And so, you know, I think bonuses have always been warranted. If you have someone who's just over delivering like crazy, I mean, why would you not, why would that person not additionally earn more money? I don't understand. They, they help you, um, you know, in, in, in the BPO's case, they would help you, you know, have a, positive relationship with your client most likely contribute towards the renewal you know um all of these different factors be a positive inspiration if they have a good attitude towards the other employees um they would most likely if they're a high performer be naturally pushing up the employees of their teammates um, by sharing you know tips and tricks and just by helping out and maybe they do some you know ad hoc, uh, casual, mm-hmm. on-the-job training, etc. So, like, why would you not reward this person? Just because your systems don't necessarily capture every single contribution they're making, anyone with eyeballs can see that this person's delivering a ton more, right? And so no one would be upset to know, like, yeah, you know, Jana got a bonus because she's awesome. And I was like, yeah, Jana's awesome. Like, Sure, you know, like, and, oh, uh, I want to get a bonus too. God, I'll be like, yeah, it's like, cool. Like, 
And there, there are two things that can go wrong here, either or, or, or one that could go south and one north to say so. Either we take yeah. Jenna as a role model and we're going to be more ambitious about doing that job, or we're going to let Jenna burn as a candle and one day she's going to tell us that she's moving on and we're going to lose someone that was extremely valuable uh, for that yeah. community. For those two scenarios, I mean, I would I would encourage this mythical person to not burn themselves out. Right? I do think that it's important that high performers, um, high performers, become very aware of what their limitations are, and that they are encouraged to take proper rest. <laughs> Um, Very sensitive but, here, limitations, yeah. no one evading limitations. I mean, no, I think personally right. we struggle with that every day. Yeah, 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 yeah. People do, but I think um, this is part of a. I think humility is a very important virtue that has disappeared from society. And one of the things that humility doesn't mean being a doormat, it means being extremely accurate about your understanding of yourself and your your place in the world and the limitations that you have especially as a human being and um you're right we don't encourage it every single thing out there on self-improvement and social media yep. is always telling you even that movie limitless or whatever like it's always trying to right like optimize 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 everything you can't just eat anymore no everything's you know what i mean i mean you could use six fingers of one hand i mean then seven yeah but yeah you can't you can't even you can't even just take a shower and take a cold shower like anyway so you know so everything's it's ridiculous it is absolutely it's a parody it's it's insane in some ways and i'm afraid that it has made a lot of young people overly anxious and insane because you have to think about everything and unless you're autistic you can't think about everything yeah like it's it's just going to be too much for you and so i think humility is long due for a comeback in terms of a virtue that needs to be thought thought about talked about and explored much more often but anyway so you know that's certainly part of it of of preventing um i've had to i've had extremely high performers on my teams that have directly reported mm -hmm. into me and so i'll give them assignments but the assignments are to relax so i'll say oh you have a you have to do something um you have to repick up a hobby i remember wow, giving this, this assignment is very once. interesting and so the fact that i phrased it that way made it easier for them to accept and so for me, it's about, you know, how do I adjust to this person's personality to get them to, you know, and then I'll warn them too. I'm like, hey, you know, burnout's real. Mm -hmm. You won't be effective if you do this to yourself. And I've been a hypocrite. I've done it to myself. And so I share with them, you know, I'm vulnerable and say, I burned myself out before. Here's what happened. Here's how it felt. Like, this is Just yeah. This is where the leader steps in, right? It's a combination between experience, creativity, and intuitivity, right? Intuitivity, right? You have to be able to foresee some things that you know. Some of the people that are walking those steps that you've been, as you said about the burnout, and as you've said about the benefits of taking a hobby, you've walked the walk, and now you can tell others about it. 
Uh, yeah. So, Tony, uh, I, I know we have just a few more minutes, and I have a few more questions for you. Uh, and one of them is, what do you actually look at uh, from a potential client or when, you know, uh, looking out for a new mission, uh, a new mandate, to say so? How do you evaluate and conclude uh, that that client is the one to work with? Mm. I think it has a lot to do with their the depth of understanding that they have for what they're asking for. Mm -hmm. What are their expectations? If they if they can clearly articulate those, I think is really key for me. And then just a very very close second to that is how. Do they have the maturity to understand that we are endeavoring on a human enterprise? And because, because it is human, it's going to be fraught with um, certain kinds of unpredictabilities and inconsistencies when dealing with human beings. Um, it is not uh, a machine per se in which you see a soda that is 200 milliliters that you're going to buy for X amount of money. And then you put the money in and you get the soda to exactly what you expected to with the perfect out. mix. Mm -hmm. Like you need, you need someone who's mature enough and who cares enough about um, human beings to be able to allow for discussion, reasonable discussion and reasonable flexibility in terms of how will we navigate um, value delivery to your business appropriately. And so if you have somebody with really clear, um, you know, set of this is what I want, this is the description of what I need, they understand themselves and their needs very well. And they have that great, you know, mature human element to say, okay, well, I know what I'm requesting from you uh, is, you know, um, that there can be quite a bit of variables in it, but I'm committed to really working hand in hand with you, I think, you know, that's great. Um, there's another kind of potential client that's very rare, but if, mm -hmm. if, if it's just somebody who gives you complete trust because of your, um, your reputation and your history of working with other clients and companies before, and they just say, please just take care of it. And, um, I don't want to think about it right now because I don't have the bandwidth. Um, then somebody like that, but they still have to have those two other things. If they don't have those two other things, like I'm really hesitant to work with somebody because it's like, well, either you want something that's not real and I can't deliver. I, I try my best not to lie. So it's like, look, I, I can't, I can't give you something that doesn't exist. Right? Mm -hmm. um, if you're, if you're looking for utopia, I'm sorry, there, there is none, right? human beings are extremely messy. I can't, the utopia doesn't exist anywhere. It probably doesn't even exist in your company. <laughs> You're trying to enforce it upon me, right? You're selling something um, you don't have in stock. Yeah, yeah, yeah. And so, you know, you don't even have it. So why are you expecting it from me? Um, and if they think that, that that's a bad, that's unreasonable. It's an unreasonable, it's a tyrannical way of doing business. It's not a partnership. Um, and you know, if you think you can be a tyrant because you have a lot of money, I don't need your business. No, thank you. 
I would like to preserve my humanity and, and those who work for me. Um, and so, you know, um, you really have to have those two things. You have to know your business and what you need very, very well from your, your outsourcer and your consultant. And then you have to be very mature in the way that you understand uh, human behavior and the actual complexity and, and difficulty of what you're asking for your partner, which is to, you know, work across lines and with other people who will inevitably see me as an outsider, but then also, um, you know, building additional supplement to your teams that are going to be outsider teams, right? But, you know, um, can we have that level of, of working together and actual partnership and, and information sharing that's going to make it successful? Yeah. Um, so you, you really need those two things. If you don't have those two, I can care less about how much money you want to put in front of my face. Or whatever. I can't deliver that because you're asking for utopia and that doesn't exist and it's it's unreasonable. And that's a bad place to start off from. It's like you're hiring it. Yeah, they're a client and they'll pay lots of money, but they're a tyrant. And yeah. some places are okay with tyrant clients, you know, like fine, you know, but I'm I don't I don't have those aspirations. You know, I'm very happy with the with the humble lifestyles. <laughs> I don't need I don't need to deal with it. Right. Um, it might seem as time fiction what you just said, but I, you know, I resonate very much with with this uh, process of filtering between clients and whom do you work with. And I think part of the past experiences that we had helped us build these filters, uh, so they get us closer to the self actualization uh, moment uh, within us, our profession, our personality, and now. Uh, one or two closing questions, Tony. Is this still po possible? Um, yeah, yeah, yeah. Of course. I hear a lot to be uh, nimble as an organization, to be agile. Um, <laughs> uh, before you laugh with tears over here, because I know where you're laughing partially at least. Right. I can't read your mind, but I know. <laughs> uh, is because even when I tried this at a very, very small level, uh, but what do I mean by small level? I went back and said, listen, if you are negotiating a contract with KPIs in the SOW set from the US for all geographies, you're going to fail. Yeah. It took two years for that to come true. Uh, so, you know, I, I laughed when I heard, oh, but we were very agile, we were very nimble um, over here. And I wanted to ask you if you think that there are real differences in managing teams from one country or a different country and we should tailor these KPIs in these SOWs so it, it, executives should actually take in consideration this. Yeah, I think it's I think it's important. Like the only way you could set any kind of a global KPI is if they're they're effectively the reason you set them is not to push performance to a certain level, but you set them just to make sure that it doesn't fall be mm -hmm. below a very, you know, a, a critical level. That's the only way that I could see using global KPIs um, to be beneficial um, because you're ignoring so many details. Uh, if you're running a massive, large, you know, multinational corporation, um, 
a good way to stifle innovation and a good way to cripple your company is to try to come up with these um, over general, you know, over centralized um, business units and KPIs um, and governance structures. Um, because, you know, look, the United States is not run well. <laughs> Right. Uh, and and that's like, look, large, large organizations that you, you want to over constrain in the wrong ways. It's you can have a few. I think what's best for large corporations, you want to centralize anything, you could centralize heuristics. Mm -hmm. Heuristics aren't KPIs. They're just, you know, behavioral like, hey, do these five general things. Mm -hmm. But if you want to, you know, actually manage your business well, you have to pay attention to the realities of each of the geographies in which you're operating. And then once you get that data, you can set some reasonable targets. You don't set the targets beforehand. The targets should not perceive the actual reality of what's happening in the region. That doesn't make any sense. I could go I'll be like, okay, I want uh, you know uh, five uh, amazing resorts with swimming pools and beaches on the moon. It's like, sorry, that's not possible on the moon. <laughs> um, like it's like, okay, yeah, but well, I wrote I mean, to Santa. Yeah, yeah, <laughs> exactly. And so the, <laughs> you know the, the the problem with a lot of this centralized planning is that <laughs> it it exists in a vacuum where you don't pay attention to the details. And the details actually matter when it comes to, again, building businesses that work and that work for a long time. Um, and if you want to retain great regional talent and you want to frustrate people to, you know, all hell, it's like, why? It's that old Steve Jobs line. Why do you hire smart people and then tell them what to do? It's like, didn't you just buy that company because you thought it was a great purchase? Why are you going to go in there and then force all this other like external stuff upon them without asking any questions? Yeah, it was great before you bought it, but now you can ruin it because you own it. So. <laughs> yeah, yeah, yeah. <laughs> it's totally, yeah, it's totally safe. It's totally fine. Uh, so what you're actually saying is that this kind of tailoring is absolutely mandatory and that you kind of encourage the feedback that's coming towards leadership and management to actually consider these cultural barriers factors that are needed out yeah. there and uh, i would add on top of this that if they're not discussed in advance with the client you're gonna you're gonna disappoint someone because that person yeah, yeah. was not educated and cannot foresee these results and that's why they're coming to you as a partner as a vendor right yeah. You need the appropriate amount of authority at each level of management. And what's interesting is that if you push that to where it makes the most sense, you naturally flatten out your reporting lines and you might save yourself a lot of money by having less like VP level executives, for example, that are just unnecessary. You have like executive bloat, it's very expensive. So something I've never understood about like hyper growth companies is like the mantra from senior leadership and HR is usually hire more senior leadership, but no one ever stops to ask, like, what actually do you really need that role? Because we built the business without it. So the, the question should be entertained instead of just taking for granted that you actually need necessarily all of those centralized bureaucracies, right? I think 
that makes companies unnecessarily bloated and heavy. Mm -hmm. um, and then you end up cutting through the wrong space later on because they cloud your vision. If you have bloated executive management, what happens is your vision gets clouded as a C-level because you, you get all this biased information presented to you that tries to make each of them look good because they're all waiting in line for you to leave, right? Um, <laughs> yeah. Um, or maybe, maybe, maybe not. <laughs> well, uh, I think there are going to be a couple of VPs uh, in the, you know, listening to this that won't feel very satisfied because they might have a imposter syndrome over there and actually acknowledge that there's no real need for them in that company. Right. We don't want to upset anyone. We don't yeah. want to upset anyone, but maybe they will find a purpose or build the niche that is needed over there to justify their their layer. Yeah, well, I, I would encourage them to, you know, just look for value delivery. But if there's not, I would actually encourage them to go, because I've done this before for myself, like go, go find something that is actually more fulfilling where it's not just about collecting a paycheck. I mean, unless that's your strategy, then I'm sorry. No, I don't, I don't. We don't we don't judge. I, I I think the advice you gave was for someone of a different personality. Uh, yeah, I, yeah. you know I subscribe to that, but it's it's not everyone has a topic for it. Uh, but for me, finding purpose in what I do is the most important and and most satisfying, and bringing added value to the table uh, over there yeah. uh, rather than getting that paycheck. And the closing question for you today, Donnie, and thanks for heroically resisting. This is two hours of continuous talking on this topic. So I think no one can doubt by looking at this that we're not passionate about what we're doing. Uh, <laughs> uh, the, the closing question is, how do we deal with executive egos in this kind of role? What tips do you have there for me and others? Because the egos are pretty inflated. Yeah. Um, I would say it would be really wise to study up on the client that you want to have or that you're, you know, you're thinking about trying to, to persuade to hire you. Try to understand their personality really well by not only what they've said publicly, but any actions you can see they've taken. Um, maybe they've, you know, bought up a lot of uh, natural uh, wildlife preserves that maybe they've donated a lot to an orphanage. And, you know, there's other things that they've done in their life that mm -hmm. could be informative about their personality. And just really try to understand them as a human being. and. You know, for those who have you know, really pumped up egos, um, you, I would say the, the wisest thing would be um, not radical candor, but trying to find reasonable ways in which to positively present the reality of the situation that you see and to really focus not so much if you're ever going to mention a, a problem that you see, is to really focus the energy on the solution. Um, so, you know, you're going to mention it. It's always going to be there in the background, in your back pocket, all the details of the problem, if you need to describe it. But executives are very busy. And if you can focus in on the solutions and how it helps them achieve what they want to achieve. So understanding what their strategic goals are, 
mm -hmm. for themselves and their career goals are really going to help you kind of cater to their personality and making sure that you're keeping the conversations focused on value delivery for them and their career and what they're trying to deliver for their company, um, their shareholders, whatever it is, um, then you can focus in on those positive things. Um, yeah, guys, and uh, something from a consultancy point of view, consulting role, the, the objective is not for you to always be right in spotting out what was done wrong. The objective is over there to, uh, you know, get hands together, uh, don't point fingers, roll the sleeves and work together to actually uh, finish, finish, uh, eliminate uh, or reach a certain objective over there. So that's why you were hired. Tony, thanks so much uh, for today. Uh, I really enjoyed this conversation. Appreciate the golden advice. And please let me know when that book comes out so I can buy a copy. I will. Thanks, Darius. Appreciate it. Okay. Thanks. Bye. Bye-bye.